Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is J.C. Vega, a retired United States Army colonel who was the co-founder of the Army Cyber Institute. He started his career as an Army aviator before becoming a renowned cyber guru uh, and amassed a distinguished career in military as well as industry, culminating uh, as the, uh, the chief information security officer at Cybersecurity firm uh, Devo. He's now a consultant. JC, always great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security, of course, uh, not only sponsors our cyber report, but our cyber coverage more broadly. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Uh, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Leonardo DRS, GE Aerospace and Helicon Chemical sponsor sponsored our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium uh, out in Denver, Colorado. Uh, JC, thanks again uh, for joining us. It's always have, uh, a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, the National Cyber Strategy is now out, uh, and folks have had a little bit of time to digest it. We had uh, Mark Montgomery, uh, obviously of uh, Cyber Solarium Commission fame, and he's over now at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, he joined us last week to take a look ahead at the strategy because it hadn't been rolled out when he when he joined us uh, and give us a sense on what you know the budget outlook is going to be for cyber and, and, and government. What's your take on the strategy? What did the administration get right? Uh, and uh, and what's going to need some more work in your view? You know, one thing they got right is they built on previous successes. They, they're not starting from scratch. And there's a lot of references to previous work that was done by not just the current administration, but previous administrations, but as well as a lot of work that has been done by the private sector and nonprofits. So one of the themes that I see in there is working together this uh, collective defense, and it resonates just from uh, reading the document on, on how there's this interdependency and that the government nor private sector will do this alone. To, in, in your view, though, what are the keys to that success, right? Um, you know, everybody in the community has been talking about the need for a more collaborative, uh, a more intimate relationship. Uh, what are the sort of the hurdles, right? So it's great to have this as a strategy and it's a guidance document, which is important. Uh, the question is the application of it. I think folks have been working this problem hard. How do you gauge the progress to date and what, what more do we have to do given that actually, right, the, the government is, is a user, a regulator, a shaper, but that the infrastructure exists uh, in commercial industry? You know, I learned this a long time ago in my military career that vision without resources or funding is hallucination. So what is it that is going to inspire, inform, inspire, inspire and empower the, the discipline, the community to actually work together for this common goal? And what everyone has to evaluate is what value is it to them? What are they going to benefit from achieving these objectives and these goals? And in, in the private sector, that's easy to measure. That's in, in dollars. Uh, is there a return on investment there? In government, it's measured differently. So what you, one of the challenges that we've always had with pri public-private partnerships 
is finding that balance where the return on investment for both is enough to warrant the investment in uh, this collaboration. So if the value is not there for either side, it just won't happen. You know, when you when you look at the trend lines and the approach that the administration has has had, is that the right foundation, right? I mean, Chris Inglis had a very successful tour uh, as the national uh, nation's first national cyber director. Uh, you know, somebody very prominent uh, has has picked that up. You've got Jenny Shirley at CISA. You've got uh, Ann Newberger, obviously, at the White House as well. Um, you've got General Nakasone working initiatives uh, over at NSA and U.S. Cyber Command. I mean, how do you gauge the incentives, the leadership focus on on deepening the partnerships? And 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 where do you you know? And where would you put your tough schoolmaster hat on to say, okay, here's where we need to do better? You mentioned those leaders, and that's the dream team of cybersecurity. You you, you couldn't have built a better team or uh, with those leaders there. Uh, having worked with most of them in some capacity, they do believe in this public-private partnership. It is something that is part of their ethos. And uh, I'll tell you, from working with uh, General Nakasone back when he was the National Mission Commander, uh, he went out and engaged private industry one-on-one to find out what their challenges were to understand where their pain points were. And then they would talk about what the, from his position as a national mission commander at Cybercom, US Cyber Command, what he can and what he can't do. And the important, what was important about that is this was a relationship that he was building uh, years ago. This wasn't something that was a one and done. And now that he's the, NSA director and the U.S. Cyber Command commander, that carries forward. Those relationships carry forward. And same thing with uh, Jen Easterly and and Chris Inglis and and Ann. The idea that this isn't just a new novel idea that they're going to try. This is something that's been in the works uh, for more than a decade now. Uh, and I should point out that uh, Campbell Walden uh, is the uh, interim national cyber director until uh, a uh, permanent replacement for Chris uh, is selected, although there was every expectation that she would be the one to pick up the portfolio since she was uh, Chris's uh, deputy. Um, from your standpoint, uh, JC, what what's the way, particularly for industry, to move faster, right? I mean, I was just at the Aerospace Warfare uh, Symposium. Uh, it's wrapping up uh, today, and I get on an airplane and, and come back to, to Washington, D.C. Uh, General C.Q. Brown, the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, and Secretary Frank Kendall have been pushing sort of accelerate, change, or lose, right? The imperative of moving faster, um, you know, empowering the force to move faster, right? We're sending the broad priorities uh, we know what we have to do now. Everybody, get out there and and fix your piece of it. Um, that's great if you have you know civilian and military leaders driving it. We have that in this case. What are the elements that are necessary to get the whole of government moving faster? Because cyber touches everybody, and a vulnerability in the Department of Interior or transportation can be impactful on national security, just like a vulnerability at the Pentagon. You know, there's. A lot of things I can throw out to you. you. You need to maneuver faster. You need to be able to adapt. You need to be able to be agile. And those are all terms that we throw around on, on how do you do that? How do you actually uh, execute uh, 
any operation faster and with confidence. So one of the fundamental things, and I'm going to go back to this, so we talked about the public-private partnerships. One of the things that we stressed in the very beginning when we started this uh, in, with engaging the government cyber community with the private sector, private community, uh, we what we did was we brought the influencers and the key leaders together. This was something that started in 2015 with a, a who's who of cybersecurity conference uh, that was hosted by one of the military academies. This happened to be at the United States Military Academy at West Point. And it rotated at the different uh, academies over the years, and it's still ongoing. And the idea was to bring these thought leaders in the cybersecurity discipline so that they could engage in an intimate setting where they can share the challenges and the resources that are available to resolve the most pressing issues of not just today, but into looking into the future on what's coming next. Why was that important? We say cybersecurity is a team sport. We hear that all the time. Well, I take it one step further. It's a contact sport. You have to engage. You have to know the people that you're going to be working with. Our community is still small enough that you actually have the opportunity to meet the leaders and engage with them. And what does that do? That builds trust. And in crisis, I say you're going to respond at the speed of trust. It's critical that you build that trust well in advance, because when you're going to maneuver, when you're going to adapt, and you're going to be agile to whatever threat is out there, you're not going to move any faster than the trust you have in the people, in the resources, and the tools that you have. Because if you do that, you may be, if you move faster than that trust, you may be exposing yourself, and that would create other challenges. So you want to know who's on your team, not just your team that is part of your organizational chart, but that extended ecosystem. Who else is out there that is willing and able, that has a capability and capacity to respond to you in a time of crisis? What are the kind of investments that are going to be needed, uh, do you think, in the um, right? I mean, what's the kind of investment um, and the and you know, I mean, at the end of the day, for industry, it's about return on investment. In the case of the government, it's it's sometimes being you know as strategic as you can be, as you said, right? I mean, it's just a hallucination without the the resourcing. Where are where are the critical right? So where does industry need to be investing more? Where does the government need to be investing more in order to try to uh, to get to the level of security that we need? Right? I mean, we keep talking about it but the levels of security keep going up and it's a little bit like the manpower goals. We're not achieving the manpower goals or personnel or people goals that were set 10 years ago. And each year we need a hundred thousand more people to get, and we're not even filling the billets we have. And a little bit of improving capacity is the threat keeps evolving, right? So I think we're probably better today than we were a couple of years ago, but maybe we're not as good as we need to be for the future. Where would you be putting that investment? If you were back in your CISO uh, hat, uh, or whether you were back in your army cyber hat. That's quite a challenge you, you just uh, articulated there. And I would tell you that it's, it's not just one solution. What we, one of the things that we're aiming to do in the cybersecurity uh, community is to reduce the attack surface. 
And that means the reduce of vulnerabilities of where someone can impact your operation. Part of that is there's a lot of organizations that are not resourced to be able to invest in security. They're investing to keep operations running. There's a lot of small and medium-sized companies that just don't have the knowledge, skills, and ability and resources to address their cybersecurity challenges. That's true of municipalities, down to school districts, down to small townships that are being ransomed where uh, regularly. So the investment that has to occur, in my opinion, and it's addressed in the strategy, is that those that have the ability to and resources to secure the infra infrastructure also have the may have the ability to extend that security to their supply chain. That means those that will impact their operation. So this the security of, let's say, a large organization that has multiple uh, entities in their supply chain that are increasing its attack surface, that larger organization has to invest, should invest, should be incentivized to invest uh, by the government into securing that supply chain for companies and organizations that don't have the ability to do it on their own. That's one part. And that is this uh, shared security, this collective security. It's not just your organization. But something else we can do from the cybersecurity uh, software industry and, and hardware industry is we have to reduce the complexity. Right now, it takes a lot of knowledge, skill, and ability to be able to secure an infrastructure. There's a lot of specialization that's required. There's new tools coming out. There's new threats coming out. You're constantly learning. We're not bridging the manpower shortage that we have. We've been talking about this manpower shortage for more than a decade, and we have not made a dent. Something has to change. And part of that is putting the ownership on the software development uh, industry to make their products more secure, to share in the responsibility and liability of their software. Also, to reduce the complexity so that you don't have to be superhuman to implement security, so that the average person has a level of uh, ability to implement basic security in their home, in their small to medium-sized business, in their municipality that will scale so that you, you're adding security at every entry point, thus reducing the, the vectors and your attack surface. So I would say that the big thing is to reduce that attack surface, sharing the responsibility for security and reduce the complexity. Those are issues that are actually addressed in the in this strategy. So I, I was really impressed by that. Let me take you to the question of incentives, right? Because at the end of the day, it's all about moving the cheese, right? The mice will follow the cheese and cheese is often money. Is is the right incentive um, to, to reward those companies that are moving quickly to protect their own interests and to reward those companies that frankly are able to give you these kind of more... Um, 
automated, more comprehensive tool sets. I mean, one of the things the community, I think, unfortunately, still prides itself on uh, is sort of the, you know, the, 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 the guy who's developing the unique code or whatever, as opposed to saying, hey, look, at the end of the day, as much as we value our hoodies, uh, we got to hang them up and 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 uh and sort of change the paradigm i'm not being critical of anybody uh at all um, i mean i admire folks in the community the pioneers in the community uh and those who still you know have those exquisite skill sets but we're not producing those kind of people in the numbers we need which is your your an observation by the way you jc have been making for a very long time it, it you know what what's the incentive structure is it merely rewarding those companies that are moving faster putting in that security to show as an example hey that, you know, did you, did you see that the Vega Industries is the one that got the contract and not Maradian Industries because JC invested and Vago didn't? Is that the right way to do that? You know, I, I don't think that's the right way to do it because in that instance that you just provided, there's one winner. But there's going to be a lot of products that are still out there that are going to be losers and will not get rewarded for all the effort they put in security. So the incentive has to be... Uh, inherent in their product, whether they win a government contract or not. So there has to be incentives to develop secure code, whether you're working with the government or not. And so part of that is to minimize the cost of making, making software secure. The government can do a lot in that, in providing and working with the community to provide the frameworks, but also making them realistic and also re sharing in that responsibility and the liability that comes with it. Because if a company is going to absorb all the risk, they may not uh, comply because they don't see the incentive in it. So the idea is sharing that responsibility. There's lots of ways to do that, but the idea is uh, winner take all where only one company will win a contract. That's not the way to spread security across ecosystem. That shouldn't be the only criteria. That should be a standard that is imposed across all the software that's being developed to be able to operate in this ecosystem. And right now, as you mentioned, that is not necessarily what incentivizes uh, VCs and startups. It's first to market wins the lion's share of the market of uh, the business. So it's not first to market that's secure, it's just first to market. So we may have to change that and incentivize others to do this securely. Uh, but, it, but I guess, um, so I completely agree with you, right? You don't wanna end up uh, you know, driving yourself into a monopoly, but if, some of these first mover advantages or some of these innovators get rewards more quickly through work, is that what is actually going to help drive a broader ecosystem change? Because right now, folks have managed to monetize the system to their advantage. And so may not be as it, right? I mean, they want to make it bespoke and exquisite and um, um, I don't want to say exclusive, right? Um, uh, so, you know, there are a lot of people who are vested in the system operating the way the system currently operates, as opposed to saying, hey, look, here are some innovative firms who are coming into the market and able to give you something very different. I guess what I'm saying is rather than going with just one and making it, you know, Vega Industries being the 800 pound gorilla that <laughs> they'll beat the daylights out of you, because, um, of course, Vega, Vega Industries would never do that. Um, 
you know, but the, in order to create a, a it'll reward the, the, the multiple innovators so that you actually have many more choices in the future. And then those choices and the competitive pressures you put drive the whole ecosystem to change, I guess was, was my, I should have framed my question a little bit better. Well, I, I think that's important. And one of the things that has to be implemented there is that security is embedded in whatever that tool, whatever that next widget is going to be. How do we incentivize that goal without harming the innovation? And, and that's a part that uh, is going to be a challenge. But the thing is, there's a landscape, there's an appetite out there for that. Every city, every town out there has critical infrastructure that's providing their water, providing their electricity, providing basic services that are under, under resourced and not as secure as they could be or they should be. So, but if they can't afford to do security, there's gonna be some, there's gonna have to be some other incentive or some other means to provide that security. And that may mean a, a bigger government. A, uh, if it's not the city, it might be the county. If it's not the county, it might be the state. If it's not the state, it might be the federal government. But incentivizing that security and providing the resources, not just to the municipalities, but also to the developers, there has to be a balance there. Uh, because if right now, the way we're doing it, it's almost a winner take all. And right now, as we said, organizations, small, medium-sized municipalities, they can't afford security. They just can't afford it. And again, I mean, right? Why? Why? Uh, you know, the the case to uh, transform the model itself, uh, and not only can they not afford it, but we we don't have the people to be able to do it either. Um, let me let me take you to um, uh, the question of how folks uh, need to be preparing for uh, the next uh, uh, wave or anticipated wave of Russian. Uh, cyber uh, attacks on the United States as the Ukraine war gets worse. Uh, there were concerns, obviously, as tensions between China and the United States get worse. The Chinese, who are always very active, uh, will use that as an opportunity to step up as well. And we've seen them as being a, a persistent threat. How do folks, what's the mindset people need to be going at? Because people have been at the parapets, JC, uh, since before, you know, when shields up, uh, the shields up warning went up, everybody did put shields up, but folks are tired. They've been defending constantly. Uh, and it's always, you know, the attacker has an advantage. Um, what's, what's the mindset, the investment and the approach folks need to be taking as we go into uh, the second year of this war? You know, one thing we, what we have, what we need to do collectively is, inform, inspire, and empower people to secure their infrastructure, to secure their own home, to secure their own business. Part of that is individual responsibility. You, you remember we're of that age where we practice drills in, uh, in elementary school through high school uh, on what we did in, in event of, of a crisis. Uh, unfortunately, now the crisis that they're practicing are horrendous for kids. But the idea that we have first aid kits in our home, I live in hurricane country down here in Florida. We have escape routes. We have a whole infrastructure to protect ourselves, to not prevent uh, the hurricane from happening. You can't do that, but to minimize the impact and survive and be able to be resilient. Right now there's grassroots efforts 
to do that, to, to bring that type of mentality to the home, to the individual. There's grassroots efforts to bring that to the small and medium-sized businesses and the municipalities. There are things going on at the federal level, but there's a big gap in between the resources that are available and just a, uh, an agreement on what those steps should be. We used to practice uh, emergency response drills that if, you know, if somebody was bleeding, what the immediate actions that you must take. And I learned that in the military, you know, 30 years ago. And if I roll up onto an accident on the road today, I can still do that and have done that. Right. The idea that what are the immediate action drills that each of us should have both at the individual level, at the organizational level, at my company level, at my small business level, who do I call? Are they going to respond appropriately? Right now, we know that if I call 911, you're going to get a somebody on the line and they're going to give you instructions and patch you to either fire, police, or, or medical help. Uh, what is the equivalent to 911 for cyber? Right. And it's different. There is an equivalent, but it's different based on the size of the organization that you have. But there's things that you're expected to do on your own. You're not going to call 911 if you, you, know, you know, have a paper cut. So there has to be standards on when to call 911 for cyber, and there has to be someone on the other end to be able to help you. Part of that is we have to educate our communities and our businesses on what an incident response plan looks like and who's going to respond. And there has to be someone at the other end of the response. Otherwise, it's a, it's a hollow plan that really isn't going to work. And in time of crisis, you want to have trust in that plan and you have to exercise it. And so the idea of pushing cybersecurity down to the lowest level, down to like we taught it first aid in, in school and we taught drills in schools, we need to start teaching cybersecurity at an elementary level uh, to individuals so that they can have a uh, universal understanding that we can build upon that can scale. The, this, one of the issues that's talked about in uh, the policy here in the strategy is how do you scale these efforts? Well, that, that's a challenge in itself too, but it has to start somewhere. And one of the things that's important when we talk about what can we do, how right now it's assess your own security vulnerabilities and what are the resources that are available to you right now for you, the individual, you, the small business owner, you, the employee at a municipality, and what's your responsibility in time of crisis? We all have a role, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a cyber crisis, we all have a role to respond. Um, and un unfortunately, uh, we're we're out of time, but that's uh, that's a terrific point. And I should uh, just give a shout out to our mutual friend Philip Niedermeyer, uh, you know, another uh, cyber uh, guru visionary. He's also uh, chairman of the board of advisors of the uh, National Cyber Group. Uh, he's also a senior advisor on the uh, uh, Cyber uh, Space Solarium Commission 2.0 or Cyber Space Solarium 2.0, and he said. Right, the importance of elementary education. Ron and Cindy Gula are working this problem as well. 
because unless we get you know a, a generation of digital natives thinking the right way about security, we're not going to get there either. I mean, this has to be sort of coursework from an elementary school level so that folks get cyber-minded, security-minded, because everything we do is in cyberspace, literally. You're, you're fused to your telephone from, from sunup to sundown, and it's monitoring you while you sleep. You know, and and that's many a, people don't even know the basics. That's a great point. They may be digital natives, but they are not security-minded digital natives. Uh, indeed. JC, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on. Always thought-provoking. Uh, really appreciate it and already looking forward to having you back on. All the best and, and stay away from the hurricanes or hope the hurricanes stay away from you. <laughs> thanks, Vagos. Pleasure to be with you.